I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. What's good, everybody? Happy Monday. That was a tough loss against uh, the Charlotte Hornets. We're recording this directly after the game. As usual, on a Monday, I'm joined by Mr. Greg Manikis. How are you doing today, bro? I'm good, bro. I'm good. I'm uh, a little bit better than some of those fighters in the UFC last night. I don't know if you were able to catch any of those, but man, that was that was pretty rough. It was almost as bad as watching the Celtics today. Man, I'm a huge Masvidal guy. I just like his swagger. And uh, yeah. He got knocked out, dude. Like, that was such a bomb. And for someone that's never been knocked out like that in his career before, and Usman's so good anyway, like, he's just, like, solid all round as, a, like, a fundamentalist. Yeah. Uh, it, it was tough, man. Like, I felt bad for Masvidal. I was happy for Usman. And then you come into the Celtics game, and it feels like an underdog story again. And Charlotte Usman, and they just hit with that one big blow, and there was no recovery, man. Ties in really well, actually. Yeah, as I was watching uh, the Celtics today and thinking back on the UFC last night, the Celtics carried themselves with like a sense of entitlement, you know, similar to the way that Masvidal was carrying himself. You know, Usman popped him a couple times. He was sitting there smiling at him. Like you could tell he felt his power, but he didn't want to admit it. And, you know, the Celtics right now are kind of in the same line of thinking. They come into these games, especially on the, the Sunday matinee games, and they just don't have any energy. They don't bring the right mindset. And then if you give a team, I, don't, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, the Hornets are like an Usman as, as a great analogy, but if you give anybody a sense of confidence early in the game and they get it going, you know, teams are just going to play with that swagger. Teams love being front runners. And a team like the, the Hornets loves to play like a front runner. And we just let them, we let them come out in the beginning. They just hit us with the flurry of punches. And then we just never fought back. Man, the Celtics just could not contain the fact that everyone on that roster, pretty much on the Hornets roster, can shoot the free. It was yeah. so obvious that whoever they helped off of was getting was the ball was finding them, and it was just open bucket after open bucket uh, transition. They were so quick, like you could tell, like you say, you could tell that the Hornets came out looking to win this game, and mm. they did it early. Like the, the damage was done to a point where Boston just couldn't recover. The Celtics themselves were playing that ISO ball, uh, that entitlement kind of braggadocious. We know that we can get a point on you whenever we need to. And it just didn't work out, man. And I don't know what it is with this Celtics team and, and matinee games and playing down to competition. I mean, Charlotte are a good team, but their two best players were out in this game. Yeah. You know what I mean? When they played the Bulls, the Bulls are a good team, but their best player was missing. They lose to the, the Nets, but two of the Nets' best players are missing. Why is it that... They're playing down to competition when they're capable of so much more. That's where the frustrations for me kind of come into this. Oh, definitely. And I like what you said. You said um, the, the Hornets came out playing to win. Like they expected to win the game. You know, and the Celtics right now are expecting people to just give them a victory. you got to go earn that. you got to come out with the right mindset and go earn the victory and play from the very beginning of the game. Like you know that you're, you're going to take the other team's soul. And we don't really have that edge. And I don't know what it is, man. There was, you know, that really encouraging three-week stretch where the ball was zipping around. Well, we have, like, less than 15 assists today. Um, the Hornets had over 35. You know what I mean? Like, what, what kind of a joke is that? I don't understand how you can go from playing this great team basketball and seeing the tangible results 
and then revert back into this this ISO heavy ball. Especially, I don't want to. I really don't want to be the guy that hates on Jason Tatum because he does so much for the team. But man, I have never been more frustrated with this dude than I am after the last couple games. Man, even even the game he he played the other night, um, where he you know he had thirty eight points. I didn't think he played well. I really didn't. I thought he was you know he was way too ISO heavy, overcomplicating the game, doing things like. If you drive the ball and you've got a guy in the corner and you see two bodies, just move the ball to the corner, bro. That's all you got to do. Just move the ball to the corner. Make the right play, and that stuff will come back to you. And right now, I don't know what it is if he's not seeing the game, if he's not processing it, but he's when he doesn't move the ball quickly, it really affects the other guys on the team. And um, I, I think that's the biggest issue right now is Tatum has reverted back to this ISO ball, and I don't know what it is. I wish I could tell you. I mean, the first thing I want to hit on with what you just said is you said uh, they had that three-week good stretch. And the only common denominator I can kind of ascertain from this is Robert Williams goes into that starting lineup and you get a three-week stretch of really good basketball. Robert Williams goes down injured and all of a sudden everything else that was going well seems to fall apart. So I don't know whether Robert Williams is the missing piece that was making everything work. But it's definitely a piece that's being whose absence is being felt, I think, quite heavily at this point. With Tatum, I've said this before, never on this podcast, but sometimes I get a, a Carmelo Anthony type vibe from him. Very mm. ISO heavy, very much knows he can score, but looks for his shot first. And I don't want to, and like, look, Carmelo Anthony is one of my all time favorite scorers, one of the guys that I thought during his prime was just box office, but he's never won a chip. He's, and I'm not saying that won't be that Tatum will end up like that because Tatum's game's more well-rounded than what Carmelo Anthony's is. But being this ISO-heavy scorer and looking to post guys up when realistically you should be getting downhill, to it just doesn't make sense for me. A lot of the Jason Tatum possessions in this Hornets game were waiting for screens to come rather than attacking and bringing guys into a screen he'd wait for the screen to be set by. Then a defense is all set up. And Boston's mm-hmm. issues have been in the half-court sets have been very well covered over the rest, uh, the beginning of this season. There just needs to be some off-ball movement to give guys room to operate. A lot of the time, Tatum was going ISO on the wing, and people just weren't clearing out the side for him. If you're going mm-hmm. to run ISO, at least clear out the sides. But you guys put up a tweet and uh, I completely agreed with it. You said this isn't an X's and O's issue. This is a, an effort and uh, like attitude issue. And I completely mm-hmm. agree. This game wasn't about who got who outcoached who and what sets were drawn up. This was about the mentality not being there for Boston. Yeah, and I think that that manifested most in the Celtics' inability to match up in transition, and not even in transition, off of made baskets. We, we were getting caught in the cross matches. You know, they we weren't covering necessarily who w- was covering us on the other end. And the lack of communication, Rozier and Graham would just sprint the ball up the court and they'd be in the paint within three seconds. And then we'd be scrambling out to shooters and they were walking into three-point shots. I mean, they probably had five or six three-pointers off of made baskets where they just walked into a three-pointer because we didn't get back in transition and match up. And that that's just a communication thing. That's an effort thing. That's a mindset thing. That's a focus thing. And I don't, I don't I really wish I could tell people that are listening what it is with the team. I know people are going to want to point the finger at Brad and say that this is Brad Steve is not getting his team ready for battle. And I guess you can make that argument, but it comes down to the players on the court and whether or not 
you know, they're, they're going to hold each other accountable because there's only so much Brad can do. And, and Brad can tell them, you know, they, he, can, he can speak to them very calmly. He can yell at them, whatever you want him to do. It comes down to execution on the court. And the only people that are going to be able to execute are our top guys. And we can't make excuses today for our top guys because they pretty much all played except for Rob Williams. But, you know, we expected that. So when you have your top guys playing, it's up to them. And if, if Jason Tatum isn't being a leader on the court, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an issue. Do you think that it's not just Tatum that's regressed, though? Like, if you look back to last year, Tatum's off-ball defense has slumped because the amount of pitch passes that were thrown by Charlotte in this game, Tatum last year would have played the passing lanes a lot more, disrupted those passes, and kind of made Charlotte think twice before pitching it up ahead that quick. And then Jalen Brown, his um, perimeter defense, point of attack defense, something that he was so good at last year, just wasn't there today. He got blown by yeah. a couple of times, uh, missed his rotation. I know there was that one miscommunication with Evan Fournier. I think it was in the second quarter. You can't put that on anyone, really. Fournier is still learning the system. Jalen Brown should be marshalling that. But if you expect your man to rotate over to pick up that guy, it's it's a lack of communication and a lack of understanding. But you can't blame him. Like You can't blame Jalen for that one possession. But it just feels like... As a collective, it's been a regression overall. With skill sets that made these guys stand out defensively, they're now less than average. Some of these guys were so subpar, and they have been for more than this game. This isn't an overreaction to what we've seen in one game. Mm. I try to be very even with that stuff. But over the course of this season, we haven't seen the defensive intensity from individuals and as a collective that we've become so accustomed to just eight months ago during the playoffs. Yeah, and they, they definitely get disheartened. This reminds me of what Stevens was saying after. I think it was the the Mavs game when Luka just went crazy against us. You know, we hang our heads when guys hit shots. We, you know, we'll have a couple of nice possessions where we contest shots on the perimeter and they hit shots in our face. And then we hang our heads and we let that affect our offense. And then we come back on defense and we're not impacting the ball the way that we, we would like to. And I, I don't know if it's because there's been you know, games every other night or if it's the after effects of COVID, we can make any excuse that we want for these guys, but they're just not doing it. One thing that it's kind of interesting to me about Jalen, have you noticed that he, he's just like falling down a lot this year on both ends of the court? Like I, Bro, I, that I, one where he got his face, you know, where he was lying down. Like if you mm-hmm. look at that, that's not even a hard hit, bro. Like it probably caught you in the eye and it hurt. But that wasn't enough to lay down for an entire possession and not like not get back up and fight. The Celtics of 18 months ago, no way would Jalen Brown have laid down like that. So I agree. I feel like he's flopping a bit. I don't mm-hmm. know whether he's just tired, but that that play to me, when I when you see the replay, it's kind of like it's it's like a slap. It's not enough yeah. to have to miss a whole possession. And uh, sometimes I do question whether these guys are engaged in, in winning and invested in this regular season. Yeah, what was your what was your feeling on the body language overall today from the jump? Uh, I was talking to my brother. I'm back in Boston this weekend. So I was talking to my brother. He went to the Suns game uh, last week in person. And I just asked him, I was like, hey, man, like, what was it like watching the game live? What stood out to you? And he was like, the only guys that looked like they cared on the court were Kemba, Smart, and Tristan. He said nobody else on the team looked like they had good body language. He said Tatum was like really, really disappointing just to see how he carried himself. Because um, Charles, my brother, we, we saw Tatum's first summer league game when he was a rookie. 
And that was the first thing that we noticed when we watched him. We're like, man, like, what's up with his body language? Like, is he hurt right now? He's kind of just like dragging his feet up and down the court, not sprinting back on defense, not running up ahead. Um, and I asked him, I was like, what did you see? And he was like, man, Tatum just looks sluggish. He looks slow. He looks lazy. He looks unmotivated. And to me, the body language today, I don't know if you've ever played with a guy who has bad body language at him, but it's tough. It's tough, man. It's tough for people to kind of pick that up when your best player is moping around the court. It's really hard to, to want to play with great effort. And I was just wondering what you, what you saw in body language today. Yeah, for me, it was um, a lack of accountability, blown coverages and guys shouting at each other, shouting in mm-hmm. frustration. Um, instead of somebody being like, my bad, that's on me. You know what I mean? You could see guys throwing their arms up, looking around as if to say, whose man was that when it was quite frankly mm-hmm. yours? And um, yeah. it's very rudimentary. Like you see that, uh, you'd see that in LA Fitness. You'd see that on a street court, just mm-hmm. people trying to pass blame. Um, Tatum, for me, does carry himself a little bit nonchalant. Uh, but I do think that's just his demeanor. Uh, I don't know yeah. whether, like, if you watch him in press conferences, he's exactly the same. He's very laid back. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't read into that. And if, the, if this was a change in body language, if he'd been very eager, very hyperactive and in your face early in his career, and now it had changed, I'd be reading into that quite heavily. Like, what's up with Jason Tatum? Is it? But because it's been... Um, consistent throughout his career i'm just like this is who that guy is you know what i mean yeah. some guys just aren't full of energy like that but it definitely you know as long as the rest of your team understand that then it shouldn't affect the the team spirit sort of thing mm-hmm. but what i would say is like the lack of accountability was huge to me um nobody was really calling out for each other if you look at the defensive possessions Outside of Marcus Smart, no one's positioning guys. No one's shouting back cuts. The, the Celtics this uh, this year, baseline cuts have killed them all year. And that's mm-hmm. a communication thing. That's an understanding where your man is and understanding who's meant to pick him up if he cuts in. So for me, it's communication. I just don't think there's a lot of trust between these guys on the defensive yeah. end of the floor. Yeah, and I'm sure some of that's chemistry, right? Not having the the reps with with the the new guys on the team, with the Jabari Parkers and the Evan Fournier. Fournier has been terrible. We can talk about him in a little bit. Um, but just one more quick point about Tatum, because I do love Tatum. It's just he's he's really been frustrating me the last couple of games. Um, when you talk about accountability, that play early in the game, right, where he threw that lazy pass to to Kemba and Rozier stole it and dunked it. I was actually watching the game with my buddy, and he was like, what's up with Tatum, man? What's up with him? I was like, this is the play that kind of – is a good microcosm of the Jason Tatum experience and how you said accountability at that point, he just hung his head and kind of walked back to the bench. You know, you would hope that in that moment you make a bad pass. You just, just give him, give a little chest tap, man. Like that's my bad, like my fault. Like that was a lazy pass. And he kind of just hung his head and moped back to the bench. Um, so that, that's just the last point I want to make about Tatum. Um, but with the communication thing, I, I want to talk about Fournier a little bit, if you don't mind, like, what are you seeing from him? in terms of his IQ or his communication since he's been back? Because I thought I think he's been pretty terrible. And I know that there were reports of him having a really bad case of COVID. But to my knowledge, COVID doesn't really affect your IQ on the court. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you see out of Fournier, man? He's, he's been bad. Yeah, that COVID IQ is real, man. Have you not heard? Like lose 40 IQ points per hour. No, seriously, right. if you look back at it, like um, for me, one of the biggest things for Fournier is he's he's not 
engaged on defense as much as I expected him to be. There are plays mm. where he quite clearly gets lost. He quite clearly does not know where he needs to be. And that's on guys like Marcus, Jason, and Jalen to make sure they're orchestrating. Even Tristan Thompson, somebody that's playing drop that can see what's going on around him and within like a scope, can be like, hey, Evan, move, get there, take 24, take 12, whoever mm-hmm. they need to pick up. So part of that, I can kind of put on the rest of the team's communication. But then if you look at like his offense, he's very tentative. We haven't seen him look to penetrate much. He's very much a guy that is very, that is ultra capable of being a scorer and a facilitator by being off ball and cutting off ball and using his movements to generate open opportunities for others. He's stationary just like the rest of the guys. And mm-hmm. part of me, throughout the year has been like hey this isn't a Brad Stevens offense he doesn't want guys stationary but for new guys to be coming in and also be taking up stationary aspects within the offense that makes me start to question a little bit is this what Brad's asking them to do and maybe Mm. it's a five out and it's a read and react system and guys just aren't reacting to what they read that could then be put on the team Uh, but defensively I think Fournier's got a lot to learn it's quite a tough system to pick up with the way the switching works and the way the um, rotations work. You know, if one guy helps off the weak side corner, you need to sag back a bit and split the difference. Um, Boston have been terrible at that all year. And offensively, I just think that he's not got his legs under him. And I think once he sees a few shots falling, he'll mm-hmm. be better. But right now, he's not good. He has not been good. And it really becomes worrisome considering you used a large portion of that TPE to bring him in. Granted, it's two games back from COVID. Yeah, yeah, he's 0 for 10 in those two games. He hasn't made a shot. You know, I think he has two points in the, in the two games. So we, we definitely need to get him going. Uh, the one play that stands out to me with Fournier and just like maybe just not being engaged or not being focused or not being used to NBA basketball after such a long layoff was that play against the Nets. You know, we had him in the game. Um, I think it was a three-point game. We had just forced a baseline out of bounds. Ball comes into Blake Griffin in a late clock situation. Marcus Smart has Blake Griffin. We got him covered, man. You don't need to help off. Fournier is on Joe Harris, one guy away, one pass away, and he helps down. Joe Harris hits a three. It's a six-point game. You know, and that, that's just the type of play where, like, in what world would you go double Blake Griffin? Like, are you – did COVID knock you back to 2014? Like, you know, like what, what, what were you thinking in that moment, man? In but, yeah, world, you're right. You, in what world do you help off one of the best three-point shooters in the league, period? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I don't care what your defensive system is. If you've got Joe Harris in the corner, one pass away, you do not help. You lock that corner down. Sorry, I did cut you up there, so continue. No, you're good. You're good. I don't even know if I had anything else to go with. Uh, but, <laughs> but I think Fournier, you know, you're right. We need to get him going. We need to find a couple a couple sets that just work for him. You know, I haven't watched enough of Fournier on the Magic to know, like, what his bread and butter is. Um, but maybe, maybe if Stevens can, like, steal a couple sets from Clifford's playbook and throw it in, get him going early in the game. Um, there's that one play that kind of stands out to me today. They ran some action with uh, Fournier starting with the ball in the corner and Tatum in the mid post. Dumped the ball into Tatum in the mid post and then he cut off of Tatum and ended up back at the three point line. And that was the type of play that I felt like could have got Fournier going and Tatum held the ball, you know, and just like the over overcomplicating the simplicity of the game and the reads, as you said, the read and react guys aren't reading and reacting to what they're seeing. To me, that was an easy dump out to Fournier and just knock down that three. 
and Tatum chose not to give him the ball. Maybe it's because he doesn't trust Fournier yet or knows that Fournier is not in a rhythm. Um, and he went one-on-two on the low block and missed a layup. So um, I said I wasn't going to bash Tatum again, and here I am again. <laughs> but, I mean, we, we need to look for Fournier. This, he's a huge piece. As you said, we used a big portion of that TPE for him to add something to the offense, and it is two games off of COVID, but we need to start treating him like a priority in the offense. And right now he's kind of just another guy and we need to make him a priority so that he can kind of get his swag going and uh, make a difference for the team. Cause I think that's why we got him to make a difference. The thing I noticed with him against Brooklyn was Brooklyn respected his ability to score. It felt like when Fournier came into that game, the spacing opened up a bit more for Boston. Mm. The penetration kind of improved. Charlotte didn't give him that respect. Charlotte were up in everyone's grill. They pressured the perimeter on every possession and they pinched in real well. Sorry, they collapsed in real well to defend against drives. They had Boston's number from the yeah. get-go. Fournier is going to be one of those pieces that you, you need to operate off-ball because at the moment, teams know pressure Boston on the perimeter, smack them in the face on the way to the rim, and they're going to crumble. And the way around this is to start moving guys, get them cutting baseline, get some 45 ang- forty-five degree cuts going on, set some bat picks. What happened to the Spain pick and roll? Mm-hmm. Boston ran that so much for Kemba during the playoffs, and, uh, and I think they've ran it about four times this year for Kemba. And that's a Kemba bread and butter shot because he gets the ball in movement at the top of the three-point line. And he, he's comfortable from there. He's consistent from there. But they've gone away from that. They're not Jason Tatum um, during when Boston were playing well. They were running him off Iverson yeah. cuts and getting him up actions at the elbow. Even if they'd run him off just to create an elbow action, it was working. This whole isolation and your turn, my turn between Jaden Brown, Kemba, and Jason Tatum just does not work. And we've seen this before. We saw it when it was Kyrie, Hayward, and Tatum. We saw it with Horford involved as well. And when the team aren't playing connected basketball and looking for each other and looking to play off of each other, that's a big issue. I was watching um, an, a live earlier, and I cannot remember who was on it, but they were talking about how when the Wizards had John Wall and Bradley Beal, mm-hmm. the reason they were never an elite pairing was because they played your turn, my turn. They never learned to play off of each other. And at the moment, that's, this is what's happening to Boston. They're playing with each other, but to become excellent, you need to play off of each other. And there's a huge difference in those two statements. And it just strikes me very much that at the moment, there just seems to be no continuity. You don't know what Celtics team you're getting on a night-to-night basis. Yeah, well, I feel like we've been uh, negative enough. This was, a, this was a rough game, Adam. Is there any positives that we can take away from this and maybe positive trends that you've seen over the last couple of games? Any guys that have stood out to you as potential, um, maybe, maybe earning a couple minutes moving forward? What have you I seen? Think Neesmith, I think Neesmith has uh, been one of the more impressive guys in the last two games. Uh, mm-hmm. Twice now in as many games, he's recognized space around the wing, lifted up off the corner and got a good look, yeah. um, a good opportunity from free. His defense has been great, hustle all the way, sprints the floor on D as well. If you watch that Brooklyn game, a couple of the times, um, Neesmith is the first guy back on defense for Boston. He's going at long burst in speed to make sure he's contesting shots. Uh, he looks a lot more confident shooting that three. Looks a bit more confident with the dribble as well. He stepped in for that long two on one of them as well to beat the closeout. I think that was against Brooklyn. Uh, very confident performances from him. And uh, 
I think he's earning a bit of trust from Brad at the moment. We saw him in this game again get some minutes. He got minutes over Romeo in this game. Um, mm. There's a lot to like from Aaron Neesmith at the moment. And for a guy that's had a tough start to his NBA career, that's one of the more promising developments for me over the last two games. Yeah, there's a term that Scal uses a lot on the broadcast. He calls some, some guys live bodies. He referred to campaign as a live body, for instance, the other day. So I don't know if that's a player you want to be compared to. But uh, Neesmith is a live body. He's one of the guys, when you see him on the court, there's just another level of willingness to hustle and just run and sprint. Like how many guys do you see sprinting up and down the court on, on that, that simple transition from end to end? You don't see too many guys doing that, man. Most, most of the guys are kind of trotting up and down, and Neesmith sprints. He sprints to his spots. He sprints to offense. He sprints to defense. He's sprinting on rotations. I think, uh, I think it was you that posted a great video um, highlighting a, a great rotation that Neesmith made in a 24-second 24, uh, 24 possession. He was just in the right spots, and he was running out. He, he had that great X out to the corner um, to, to cover a three-point shooter in the corner. And I think when we talk about ways that you can point the finger at Brad – is like maybe start rewarding guys that are just hustling. I know that's very elementary and very like fifth grade basketball coach, but at some at some point we need guys that are just going to try their hardest on the court. And Neesmith, maybe you're not going to replace Jalen Brown with Neesmith, but you could replace you know somebody else towards uh, the end of the rotation with Neesmith and give just other guys an opportunity to to make a difference on the court. And Romeo didn't have it. Your guy Romeo didn't have it the other game. Did you see his net rating for that game? I didn't see. Uh, I just stayed clear of it, but I know he was. Uh, he was very, very, very bad. His net rating was a negative fifty-nine. Oh God! I, I was. Is that an NBA record? That is horrible. It's got to be close, right? But like, he didn't play this game, and I feel like. And one of the things I said when I saw him checking for garbage time was, "This was a punishment for how bad you were." against Brooklyn and Neesmith yeah. got those minutes because of the hustle that he showed against Brooklyn. I mean, I do, I think that these two guys, both of them are fighting each other for relevancy and minutes at the moment. When I think there is room for both of them, if I'm being mm. quite honest, but right now, Neesmith to me is showing he wants it more. And I don't know whether that's Romeo's demeanor, similar to where it's Tatum's demeanor, but yeah, that video I posted, um, that was an excellent defensive possession start to finish. Ice into a front of the post, into a trap. Um, hustle back onto a second side action. X out to your man. Close off the baseline, force in middle. The, like Every step of the way was excellent defense. And you're not always mm-hmm. going to get that from anyone. I don't care whether you're a 10-year guy, a first-year guy. But the fact that he managed to do that when... Three months ago, he didn't even know where he should be positioned on defense is uh, mm. incredibly encouraging. Uh, and I think that's part of the a reason why I'm so lenient with Fournier right now as well, because Fournier doesn't know where to be positioned right now, and he will learn that. And I think once he does, good defense, and Brad Stevens has said this, uh, I think coaches since the dawn of the basketball era have said this, offense rewards good defense. If you play good defense, your offense will fall into place. And if you play the right way, shots will find them. Find like shots will find you. And I think that that's what's happening to Neesmith right now. He's playing good defense, and the basketball gods are rewarding him with some offensive uptick. And he's seeing his shots fall. And hopefully that will work for Neesmith too. Yeah, I, 
his shooting, you know, he was billed as one of the best shooters in the draft, if not the best shooter in the draft. And his shooting this year has been highly theoretical. Um, I've heard different reasons as to why. If you watch his tape at Vandy, a lot more of his actions were off of movement rather than being a spot-up shooter. Um, but now it seems like he's getting a little bit more comfortable spotting up. As you said, he had a couple nice lifts out of the corner for a three-pointer like that one where Tatum, I mean, uh, Brown drove today, got caught in the air and Neesmith was in the corner and then readjusted, lifted out to the um, to the wing and hit the three-pointer. That's that's so encouraging because if that dude can become a reliable three-point shooter, that's why we drafted him. And he could definitely make a difference spacing the floor because we need guys that have gravity on the perimeter. And as you said, uh, the other night, Fournier had some gravity against the Nets, and today he didn't. So the more people that you can have that just keep the keep the defenders and the weak side honest, the more space there will be for the Tatums of the world and the Jalen's of the world and the Kemba's of the world driving the basket. So I'm really, really encouraged with what I'm seeing from Neesmith. I was, you know, I, I think you and I are on the same page that Neesmith probably needed a year of development in the G League because when you see the strides that he's made in the limited minutes and the limited practice time, you know that this dude is studying film because that's not something that you just pick up. You know, you have to be in the film room looking at that and, and really probably doing some visualization and some, you know, um, shoot around work and working with the assistant coaches. He looks great. He looks great. I want to see him get more minutes. And as you said, um, playing Romeo and Neesmith is right now doesn't seem like it could work. But just because they're so young, uh, I, I, I would like to see that pairing a couple of times because of the, the energy and the liveness of both of their bodies on the defensive end of the court. And if Neesmith can be a shooter and Romeo can be in that kind of point Romeo mode, that, that's an interesting little pairing. Yeah, I like the idea of putting them together. I still think it's going to be too early. Um, I'm, honestly, next season might be too early as well, but long-term, them, those two as bench operate, like operating from the bench could be the difference between making a finals and getting bounced in the second round. Because I think that both of those two are going to have gravity in their own right uh, for different reasons. Romeo will have that slashing gravity. Neesmith will have that pull-up free gravity. Both are good uh, good value for locking up their man defensively, as it would seem. One thing I will say is for someone like Neesmith that came in build as, um, just as a scorer, his value must be going through the roof right now because he's already developed... He's no longer just a three-point shooter. He's now a three-and-D wing. And the value of a three-and-D wing is greater than the value of a spot-up scorer. So I don't know whether Danny Ainge starts looking at that and thinking maybe we can manipulate that value for the rest of this year and see what we can net with that to bring in some veteran leadership. Because one, no matter which way you slice it, this roster, although it's been balanced a little bit more with Jabari Parker's addition, and we'll get to Jabari Parker in a moment, it's still imbalanced in terms of age. You you still need to make that decision. Do you go all in for a championship or are you waiting for some of these guys to develop? Are you waiting to see what's really under the hood of a Romeo Langford, what's under the hood of a Neesmith? Or have you seen enough to know like, hey, we need to bring some vets in and we need to get things pushing? And I feel like Fournier kind of tells you they want to get things pushing. Jabari Parker might mean the same thing. But again, Jabari Parker's a redemption project. How's it, how have you felt about him over the last two games? Hmm, over the last two? Well, I feel like if you said over the last four, my answer might be a little different. <laughs> over the last two, he hasn't looked quite as impactful as I hoped he might be. Um, you're starting to see 
a little bit of the, you know, the defensive limitations that he has as teams when, when he's on the court, you see teams start to target him right now. You know, I think his first couple games, um, they, they, they weren't game planning for Jabari Parker's minutes because I think they were kind of surprised by his minutes, to be honest with you. I, I have been pleasantly surprised with his ability to recover when he gets beat and block shots or at least contest shots at the rim. So that's nice in terms of, you know, my, uh, my hypothesizing that he might be a potential uh, small ball five for the Celts. So if, if he can guard out on the perimeter and contest shots at the rim, if he gets beat, I think he does have a role on this team. And just the idea that he knows what he's doing um, as a cutter and an offensive rebounder and a finisher, he could definitely add, you know, seven to 10 points a game off the bench on a consistent basis, you know, a seven or 10 that you can rely on versus where am I going to get my seven or 10? Which guy am I going to go to that might hit a couple shots? You know, and if it comes down to is Jabari playing over Semi or is Jabari playing over Grant, I would like to see Jabari get more of an opportunity. Um, but overall, I would say he's a little better than what I expected him to be, but he's still not a difference maker. How about you? Yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, but definitely better than expected. Uh, hasn't shown enough upside for me to think that you bring him in and he will win you multiple games in a series. He pro- he is capable of winning you one. He's very streaky. I think defensively, he's been better than build. There was a stretch in this game, I can't remember. I've got it wrote down in my notes, but my, my ring light's sitting on my notes. So um, I think it was second or third quarter. There was a stretch where Jabari Parker was one of the best defensive guys on the Celtic, on the floor for the Boston. Uh, it was only a stretch. It wasn't all night. Mm-hmm. But that isn't something I ever expected to come out of my mouth about Jabari Parker. I expected to say he was one of the most impactful guys off the bench on offense. Like That seemed feasible to me. But to say that there was a stretch where Jabari Parker was the guy you were looking to to get stops or to alter shots or to um, deter guys from driving, I never expected that. So I think there is upside there. I think there's... Uh, a bit of potential that maybe hasn't been unleashed yet that could be. But I do agree with what Brad Stevens said when they acquired Jabari, as this is more of a, a move for next year than it is for this year. This guy's still getting his legs under him. He's still learning the system. He's still getting adjusted to being back on an NBA floor. I don't know about you, but if I was Jabari, when I got cut from Sacramento, I would have been looking for Euro teams at that point. Because yeah. if you get cut by Sacramento, it means that you're not very good uh, I mean, that's just the way it is. Sacramento need anybody they need right now. So um, I think that there's definitely an upside to him that we haven't seen yet. Uh, he's struggled a bit in two games, but like you say, teams are adjusting to him getting the minutes he's getting, whereas before you just didn't expect him to be getting that. Uh, I think there's definitely a player in there that we could see that could help the team. But whose minutes does he take if you need him to be that type of impactful guy? Because he's not always going to be able to get you 10 to 12 points, 10 to 14 in limited minutes. Sometimes he'll only get you four. And that's fine because they're probably off two missed shots and he's keeping possessions alive and converting. Uh, But the one guy that I could see him really damaging in minutes will be Grant Williams because I think that they both are small ball fives. in the in an ideal world, and I think Jabari Parker just gives you more as a small ball five. Yeah, do you want to go want to go down the Grant rabbit hole right now? Yeah, Ooh, this is man. a rabbit hole I've been waiting to go down for days, dude. Let's do it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, Grant Williams. What are we gonna do about this, dude? I mean, he he was good today. You know, he had a little bit of a redemptive game today. Hit three or four three pointers. Um, made somewhat of an impact on the boards. 
But I don't know if this is a Stevens thing, playing him. You know, he's playing him with Parker right now. Mm-hmm. And pretty much he's been playing him at the four all year. So, like, as you said, Grant's a small ball five. We, we got to kind of stop billing him as a four if you're Stevens. Play him, put him in a position where maybe he could be successful because right now as a stretch four, he's not making much of an impact. And I think he's taken over the Jeff Teague uh, belt of the you know least popular Celtic on Celtics Twitter. I have never seen so much vitriol just like sprayed at one person. And it's just coming out venomous, venomous. And it's, it's affecting me in the way that I am viewing Grant Williams because I actually like Grant, but he's purely situational in my opinion. So I know you said you've been waiting to go, go off on Grant for a little bit. So hit me with it, man. You'll be yeah, more I mean, eloquent than I am. No, no, I'm not, not on this one. Um, <laughs> he's a small emotion. Bo- yeah, he's a no, look, because I want him to do well. I, like last year, I was so high on Grant Williams, but there was more rotation opportunities at the small ball five for him than what there is this year. Uh, for me now, I'm looking at it like, okay, so Grant Williams is a small ball five. We all agree. I think every man and his dog across the entire universe knows that Grant Williams is a small ball five. <laughs> and if they don't, it's because they pay no attention to humanity as a whole. Um, so for me, it's like, Okay, so now if you are a small ball five, you're behind Rob Williams, Tristan Thompson, possibly Luke Cornett, possibly, because Brad Stevens likes to pick and roll defense that you can have with Luke Cornett. Mm-hmm. But now you've got Jabari Parker to fight with. So realistically, you can be a second option at the four, or you can be a fourth or fifth option at the five. And the problem with that is Grant's IQ defensively is good enough to mean he needs to be higher up in that rotation. And the only way to do so is to slide him in at that four because you can run. Um, I don't know if you, if anyone follows me on Instagram, but having someone like Grant and Jabari Parker is that small ball. I think I put this up on Twitter as well. You can run dive actions where it's interchangeable. One guy cuts to the post, the other guy lifts from the post to the three point line. And it gives you some form of gravity and some form of five out offense and switchability that really works. But at the same time, that itself is situational. That itself mm. is very easy to counter just by bringing your big man back in. And now one of these guys has to get off the floor and it's most likely going to be the small ball five that goes off. So I think that's why Brad likes to have Grant at the four. Uh, Grant's corner freeze are uh, very reliable. So that's another mm. reason to have him at the four. But defensively, man, putting him up against wings is not fair. It's just not because he's hitting the firing line against guys that are far superior athletically than what he is. You're asking him on offense, then you're asking him to get into the post and hunt mismatches. But as soon as he does, you're not giving him options to make reads out of those post plays because you're just spacing the floor, waiting for him to get to work. He's not that guy. So I think Grant has been incredibly miscast this year, uh, partly due to the coaching decisions, partly. But I think primarily due to the roster construction this year. Um, I think Brad Stevens has done a great job of finding minutes and developmental minutes and forcing him to evolve. But I just don't think that Boston's going to be the place for him. He needs somewhere where he can consistently be a bench small ball five or split minutes between the four and the five and actually get some good work in. Have periods where you you struggle because you're at the four, but then have periods where you excel at the five. And at the moment, the uneven roster construction around that area just isn't viable for him to keep being afforded the minutes he's been afforded. That's my personal opinion. 
So do you buy this? I don't, I don't know if you're listening to um, the Celtics broadcast, but do you buy this narrative that Scal has kind of been putting forward that Grant is one of the best post players on the team? Grant saying, Williams is an incredible post player. Yeah. Incredible. He's super strong, got a low center of gravity, um, made a living in the post in college. That was where he played. Uh, got a nice little hook shot. I, I just don't think that he has this the footwork necessary to be a post player in the NBA. And he just doesn't have the size, the height size to be able to really leverage his ability in the post into points. So all well and good being able to back guys down, being able to beat them with a drop step, but they can still contest you from behind. And Grant Williams is just a bit too short for me to think you can be a viable post option that isn't facilitating. I don't know if you're going to get this reference, Adam, but to me, he reminds me of Craig Smith. Craig Smith was a, a small power forward for Boston College in the early 2000s. I think he was drafted by the T-Wolves, but you know, I'm, I'm a Boston College guy. I graduated from there. So Craig Smith was one of my favorite college players. And when he came into the NBA, he was able to move people around. He was able to um, you know, get into the post and do the same stuff that he did in college in terms of just being physical, but he was unable to make a living in the post because he was you know, 6'6 instead of 6'8 or 6'9, which is the same as Grant Williams. And I see what Scal's talking about, right? When Grant hits you, it impacts the defender. They feel Grant, which is why he's such a good small ball five, because he can go up and guard someone like a Jokic and give him problems and go up against someone like a Bam and give him problems because he's so damn strong. But Grant Williams, his passing out of the post, is, is, do, you, do you think that this is a Brad thing or do you think it's a Grant being a bad passer thing? Because the the last two weeks, every opportunity that I've seen Grant have in a post-up when he tries to make a pass out of the post, it just seems like he's not reading the game or understanding what the defensive rotations are on a cut or if he goes middle versus going baseline and where, where he's expecting his passes to come from. He's made like one or two decent reads, but for the most part, I don't think he's seeing the court at all. Are you seeing any of that? Yeah, I think it's more, it's a processing issue. I think he's not yeah. processed. I think the game is moving quicker than he's processing it. So yeah. by the time he makes a read, a defensive guy's recovered. He's not anticipating the recovery mm-hmm. when he makes a read. And I think that's a big issue for him. Um, I also think as well that Boston could put him in a better position to succeed down in the post by running some actions for him. You know, get some wedge screens so that uh, a, a secondary defensive player is taken out of that that um, that possession. So now mm-hmm. it's just one-on-one, Grant and a big man. Run across screens so when Grant does drop step or roll off the guy's shoulder, the cross screen is stopping somebody contesting. And now all Grant has to do is worry about the weak side defender rotating over. It's okay. It's an easy dunk. There's ways that you can leverage that for a few possessions a game. Not consistently. Teams will get smart the same way anyone else would. But if you did that two or three times in a game and you manipulated the way the defense is playing you with smart screening actions, I think that you could get Grant an extra a consistent six to eight points in that post. And okay. possibly if that weak side defender does rotate over, those points then convert into assists out to the corners and it's freeze. So there are ways to do it, but obviously it involves a lot of screening action. It involves a lot of read and reacts. And if Grant isn't processing the game quick enough, then you can run all the screening actions in the world. It's still not going to work. 
And I think that that's another point for Grant is he just hasn't been put in those situations consistently enough to understand how defences are going to react. And that's why it seems the game seems to be moving that bit too quick for him at the moment. So pros and cons of Grant Williams. Or do you want to see him with more minutes or less minutes? What are you thinking? I think less. I think less minutes. What about and you? Why? Uh, I think that he's a, he's a liability on defence and less... He's very situational on matchups that mm. work for him defensively. And unless that situational type player is in front of him, he's a liability at this point. So I think that he needs less minutes uh, as a generalization. So would you go Cornette over Grant? I think I'd go Parker over Grant. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of on the same same boat with you. Although I do, I do really like what Grant's bringing from the three-point line. That three-point shot has come so far, man. He's pretty consistent with it now. I, I don't have his numbers, but I'm pretty sure he's close to 40%. And it just, I trust him when he's shooting it now. You know, whether it's from the, from the wing or from the corner, when Grant Williams is shooting the three-pointer, I don't feel the same way I feel when, for example, Semi shoots a three-pointer. Semi, even though he's close to 40%, it does not feel that way. With Grant, like when he's shooting a three-pointer, I'm expecting it to go in if he's open now, which is, I mean, far different than I ever expected to think about Grant Williams shooting a three-pointer. So if we can figure out ways to put him in positions to be successful on the defensive end, because offensively, I, I trust him from the three. I see the hypothetical Grant Williams in the post, but I don't think he can guard wings and if Stevens keeps expecting him to guard wings and see him as a super switchable guy um, I think he's miscast man I think he needs to be at that small ball five and um, that, that's kind of what I'm seeing from Grant I'm hoping Jabari gets gets those minutes I'm with you on that and you know when Rob Williams comes back hopefully all these points are mute moot not mute <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm the same. I think Jabari Parker gives you a bit more size at that small ball five, a bit more length as a wingspan. Uh, he gives you more of a three-level threat. I think that Jabari's got an ability to be able to score on three levels rather than two. Grant Williams, to me, is a two-level scorer uh, around the room and outside at the perimeter. Jabari's got that mid-range. And for yeah. me, three-level scorers always impact games more than two because they're more dynamic, obviously. They've got a whole extra area of the floor they can cover with as a scoring threat. Uh, I think that being able to put Jabari as a small ball five means that he's being forced to guard guys rolling into the rim. So you remove the issue of his of his positional defensive issues, and now you're just use your body, contest the shot around the rim, close out when you need to. And I think that's a way to help Jabari Parker thrive and start building on what he's actually good at instead of focusing on what he's not good at. Um, and I, I genuinely think that he's more suited to that small ball five role than Grant Williams is as a, as a generalized rule. Now, if you want Grant to go up and guard a Cody Zeller or a Nikola Jokic or somebody that's just strong but not really very quick, fine. You put Grant Williams on PJ Washington or anybody that you saw him spend a possession on against the Hornets, he's just getting cooked every time. Mm. So uh, that's why I'm kind of just like Grant Williams should be in trade discussions in the end of this season. And for now, his minutes should be reduced. I'm with you on it. I'm with you on it. I think we can agree on that. Is there, are there any other points you wanted to hit? I think Pritchard's been doing really well. I think Pritchard, um, against Brooklyn, Pritchard was excellent. Uh, and then what I liked about this game, if you watched the first quarter again, I can't remember who was defending him. I've got to go back and watch it. But Pritchard had a guy on skates, two possessions in a row. Did you see that? Um, uh, in, in today's game? Yeah, in the Hornets game. Mm. First quarter. 
yeah, same crossover. It was um, two steps in, um, a drag back crossover, and then a step back, and the defender was on skates both times. Uh, it was really fun to watch. I think Pritchard's uh, confidence is coming back. And that limitless range badge that he's got an NBA 2K that's transferred over into the real world <laughs> has been amazing. Question is, does he draw on his eyebrows? Because this has been this is a really important question that I cannot fathom. Yeah, man. I, I, I feel like eyebrows, it's it's such a it's such a risky move getting your eyebrows done, you know, because they, they can look pretty fake. And uh, it reminds me, his eyebrows remind me of um, that Seinfeld episode where Uncle Leo burns his eyebrows off and he has to draw them on and he ends up drawing them on looking all crazy. And people keep thinking that he's angry when, when he, someone's just drawing, drawing his eyebrows on weird. But I think Peyton Pritchard, if I had to guess, man, he's, he's definitely doing his eyebrows for sure. Like someone is sitting there and like manicuring those eyebrows. Um, I don't think that he draws them on. I think uh, if, if he is doing that, he's definitely going to lose a little bit of respect in my book. Because, I mean, just just rock your normal eyebrows, bro. You got nice eyebrows. You don't need to, you know, manicure them at all. Yeah, I mean, look, man, if you want to put some some gel on there, maybe they, you know, maybe you just want to make sure they're all flushed, then do you, bro. Do you. You want to get them shaped up. Like my, I, I was speaking to this with my, about this with my wife, and my wife came up with a good point. Maybe he's dating a stylist. Maybe, mm. she's, maybe she's a trainee stylist. Maybe yeah. it's his sister that's learning to be a stylist. You don't know his life. Like somebody could be practicing on him. And I was like, yeah. this is a really good point. Never considered it. But dude, he was in a press conference the other day and I was like, bro, those don't just look drawn on. They look painted on. Like yeah. you sat there with some acrylic paint and because they're just <laughs> too perfect, bro. And uh, I know we're talking about how his basketball skills are, but that every time I see him now, I'm paying more attention to his eyebrows than I am to his actual play i have to go back and watch everything he did again because otherwise i'm going to be talking about somebody and all i've looked at is his face to check his eyebrows out it's weird i i love it i love it uh yeah with, with his game though i think i if i had to bet you said there were a couple possessions in a row where he had somebody on skates i'm not a betting man adam i uh retired i retired the betting slips but i would bet that it's bismack biombo now dude this was a wing it was a wing yeah, he put the guy on skates twice. I'm going to find the clips. I'll tweet them tomorrow, actually, or today okay. when everybody's listening to this. But he had a guy on skates twice, and it's the same guy with the same move, and it was really good because it just shows that, look, we all saw Pritchard's handles videos when he got drafted and how he's got that ball on a string. Mm -hmm. And we spoke recently. I don't know if I was with you or if I was with Will, but we spoke recently about how Pritchard's ability to beat a guy off the dribble is one of his weakest areas and that's why he leans on the screen so much. Well, the way to get around that is to cook the guy off a dribble move, dribble drive, step back, and then get going, turn the corner on somebody. So for me, if he can develop that and develop some way of creating separation due to crossovers and due to just shiftiness, well, now Peyton Pritchard looks a completely different prospect on offense. Somebody that can get downhill more, penetrate more, create more. And that's why I was so encouraged by seeing him cook a guy repeatedly. And mm -hmm. um, that for me shows that there's more development that could be done that could make him a better prospect than he already is. To me, he, I actually like his first step 
I think it's his second and third step that's a little bit slow because you, I think people do respect his first step because one of his best moves is just that quick jab step pull back for a three pointer similar to what Kemba does that you know that's one of Kemba's uh, go to moves but he's just not strong enough or athletic enough to do anything off of that first step right now you know and I I I love that point that that you're making that he needs to think attack because people do respect that first step. You know, and, and if he's in attack mode, then he can pull back to that three-point step back. And he's got unlimited range, bro. He's got unlimited range. He's the one guy on the team that can stretch out to 30 feet. There's nobody else that can do it. Here's that guy that spent all of his VC on 2K on three-point shooting and dribbles yeah. and a dribble package. Never went for any drip. That's why he's got the drawing on eyebrows. <laughs> but uh, no, I think that um, I think that he's definitely there's definitely signs that he can be more. I like your point as well. He's got a solid about having a solid first step. I think that what what gets people, what catches them out, is Pritchard is a really fast guy. But he there's two types of fast, right? There's a guy that can explode off the spot, and that's where you've got that quick initial first two three steps. Then you've got guys that have to build up into that speed. And we've seen Pritchard at full speed is a blur. We've seen him blur across the court, but it's always he has to build up to that. And that's mm. the problem when you're a ball handler that's being asked to create from a stationary position and you don't have the space or the distance required to build up to that top speed. That's where that dribble skill and the ability to create separation is going to become so much more important. Yeah, maybe more more actions that we can get him going downhill um, with a live dribble rather than off of a you know a jab step. You know, if he can do more similar to what uh, Brad used to do with Isaiah Thomas, just really get him coming off of screens going downhill, then he can make a difference for sure. Now, I'm completely out of things. I feel like we've been quite negative, but everybody's going to want that negativity because it was a bad game. Yeah. How are you feeling? Are you are you anything you want to hit on before we let these fine folks get up on out of here? I, I feel like we turned it around, man. I think the the first twenty minutes or so was a nice little vent session, nice little therapy session. But you know, it's 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 two games. Um, we've lost three of four, which is tough. But in this long season, man, I think you just need to trust that when we get healthy, if we get healthy, this team does have the potential because we've seen it, and we just need to get hot for a month. And if we get hot for a month then we, we can make some noise in the playoffs. We just can't let this four-game stretch bring us out of the top six seed. If we're in the seven or eight, we're screwed. But, you know, I, I enjoyed this conversation. I needed it. I need to just talk through some things with you. So I appreciate <laughs> the, uh, you being there as a shoulder to lean on, just another ear for me to, uh, you know, spew some takes off of. And, uh, yeah, man, everybody that's listening out there, just, you know, keep the faith. Celtics have a big week ahead and, you know, three – Three games this week that I think could uh, be the difference between the Celtics ending up out of the top six seed and in the playing game. So just keep an eye on that. Okay, everybody, we're going to let you go. We're going to love you and leave you. We are, Thank you very much for listening, for making us part of your Celtics experience. If you enjoyed what you listened to, please leave that five-star written review. If you're not one for leaving reviews, maybe you're listening on Spotify where reviews aren't available. Word of mouth is excellent. Helps us out a bunch. Best form of advertising is if somebody recommends you, same as a used car salesman, same as anything else in life that you know people wouldn't really trust otherwise. So let them know. Uh, that would be great. We'll catch you again on Wednesday. If you're listening right now, I'll be doing a live mailbag episode on the Locker Room app at 4 p.m. today. That will air on Wednesday, and I'll be back with Will for Friday. Stay safe. Don't do anything I wouldn't do, which gives you a ton of scope because I do most things. 
again, thanks, Greg, for joining us, man. I've really enjoyed these Sunday chats, and then I'm hoping everybody's enjoying it on a Monday morning. Peace out. Peace.